first congregation, the first Unitarian Universalist congregation that I joined as an adult, and I'm still a member at, is the First Unitarian Church of Baltimore, parentheses, Unitarian Universalist, if you give it its full name. And in any church that has ever existed, every Sunday morning people go to just about the same seat. Mine were usually on the right side of the sanctuary in the third or fourth pew back, Duncan and Meg, right about where you're sitting. The First Unitarian is an old congregation, and it's an old building. It was built in 1817 as the first independent church of Baltimore, and it reflected the scientific and rational architecture of the age. The building is a dome, half a sphere, put on top of a perfect cube. But you actually can't see the dome inside anymore. The church went through a major renovation in the 1890s, as churches do, putting an organ in what had euphemistically been referred to as the servant's balcony <laughs> on the top, and putting a barrel vault in under the dome to help with the acoustics. Then 20 years later, they figured out amplification, and the acoustics reason went out the window. But sometime around that renovation, Two inscriptions were placed right next to the chancel, just to the right and left. If you imagine it, it's right about where these speakers are, but low down about halfway up the wall. The one on the left is a piece of scripture. It's actually Deuteronomy, of all things. On the right are words by the Unitarian minister, James Freeman Clark, words that, if not a creed, were known by heart by his generation. We believe in the fatherhood of man. I'm sorry. We believe in the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, the leadership of Jesus, salvation by character, the progress of mankind onward and upward forever. Clark wrote the sermon that those words came from in 1886. So they were less than a decade old when they were literally etched into stone in Baltimore. And the statements, particularly that last bit about the progress of mankind onward and upward forever, became, if not a creed, then a beloved part of the Unitarianism of its day. It's not unusual to see that inscription in old Unitarian churches from the late 19th century. It is uh, sort of the spirit of life of its generation the one thing that most people can recite, if nothing else. Clark was a liberal in his theology, liberal in its theological sense, not in its political or cultural meaning. And this idea of progress is at the heart of liberal theology, that tomorrow will be better than yesterday. In the sermon that that, that inscription is taken from, Clark writes this, the gospel teaches us that there is always something to look forward to, some higher attainment, some larger useful, usefulness, some nearer communion with God. And this accords with all we see and know with the long process of geologic development by which the earth became fitted to be home for humanity, with the slow ascent of organized beings from humbler to fuller life, 
with the progress of society from age to age. Now remember, Clark writes this in 1886. And progress as an idea makes a lot of sense in 1886. The servant's balcony in Baltimore, if we're being clear, it was originally built so that enslaved people would not have to sit on the ground level of the church with the good Unitarians who bought and sold them. 20 years after the Civil War, progress onward and upward sounded pretty good. A faith in progress, a faith in progress and a faith that is in progress is a hallmark of liberal theology. And Unitarian Universalism is a liberal faith still. Our ordination, uh, our service of ordination and installation recognizes that ministers are called to serve the cause of liberal religion before they're called to serve Unitarian Universalism specifically. But even as we might recognize ourselves in that, it seems equally apparent to me that Clark's words are a product of their time. When ministers spoke without hesitation about the perfectibility of mankind, as if only half of humanity progressed or were related. Then Hodgkiss writes this about the paradox at the heart of organized religion. Religion at its best is not friend of the status quo. Religion transforms people. No one touches holy ground and stays the same. Religious leaders stir the pot by pointing to the contrast between life as it is and life as it could be and urging us to close the gap. Religious insights provide the handhold that people need to criticize injustice, to rise above self-interest, and to take risks to provide healing to a wounded world. Organizations, on the other hand, can serve. Institutions capture, schematize, codify persistent patterns of activity. People sometimes say institutions are conservative and then smile as if they'd said something clever. But conservation is what institutions do. A well-ordered congregation lays down schedules, puts policies on paper, places people in positions, and generally brings order out of chaos, or tries to. Organizations can be flexible, creative, iconoclastic, but only by resisting some of their most basic instincts. No wonder, then, organized religion is so difficult. Congregations create sanctuaries where people can nurture and inspire each other with results that no one can predict. The stability of a religious institution is necessary for the instability that religious transformation brings. The need to balance both sides of the paradox, the transforming power of religion and the stabilizing power of organization makes leading congregations a unique challenge. Anybody has served on the board? I hope that reading sounds familiar. Unitarian Universalism as a whole has gone through phases of both transformation and conservation. 
so of most of our individual churches, and if we're being honest, most of us. And conservation isn't a bad thing. The plaque in Baltimore dates from a time in that congregation's history where the congregation, after 180 years of existing, decided it was time to um, get respectable and got financially stable for the first time and then started attracting philanthropists who were doing work in the city to become members. Unitarian Universalism has also been through times of profound transformation. This is why those words of James Freeman Clark sound at best incomplete when read in 2019. To take just a few examples of that, in the mid 20th century, starting in 1947, Unitarian fellowships started sprouting up across the country. This was a project encouraged by the American Unitarian Association and later the merged Unitarian Universalist Association. And these fellowships took the liberal theology of congregationalism to its end point, further than it had gone before, starting and often existing for some time without professional ordained ministry. The fellowship movement recognized the promise of the congregationalist tradition and grew congregations in new places and in new ways. And they brought a ton of congregations and people into Unitarian Universalism. From 1948 to 19. 58, 10 years, 378 fellowships were formed. Over 12,500 Unitarians joined because of the fellowship movement. 75% of those people had had no connection with Unitarianism beforehand. To put those numbers in perspective, for the last 50 years, there have been about 1,000 Unitarian Universalist churches in the country. So of that 1,000, over 300 formed during the fellowship movement. The fellowships that formed at that time were also predominantly humanist in their outlook, which has colored our movement since. We have collectively moved away from the pits of Clark that say the fatherhood of God and the leadership of Jesus. And then a generation after the fellowship movement, another change transformed Unitarian Universalism. In 1968, 2% of serving Unitarian Universalist clergy identified as female. In 1978, just a few years before I was born, that number was 5%. In 1988, 10 years later, it was 25%. In 1998, it was 50%. I actually don't know. They haven't released numbers recently. But um, the, the standard of ministry that is uh, male, straight, and balding <laughs> uh, is not the default anymore. And this didn't happen by accident. 1978 was in there for a reason, because in 1977, General Assembly passed a Women in, in Religion resolution calling for the association to examine models of human relationship arising from religious myths, historical materials, and other teachings that still create and perpetuate attitudes that cause women everywhere to be overlooked and undervalued. The resolution 
called on Unitarian Universalism to work on assessing and changing language and assumptions that contri contribute to stereotyping, and this part's important, they required the president of the association to report back to General Assembly every year the progress that was being made. And in 20 years, they went, the association went from 5% of professional clergy being women to 50%. 20 years is half a career for most ministers. That is a fast, fast change. I'll say, I hope this congregation appreciates this. I was looking up those numbers, and I found them in, um, in a report called Leaping from Our Spheres, published back in 98 about this movement. And I was looking at it, and I was like, ah, oh, this is really well written. This is great data. I wonder who did this. Um, and I, I went to put a footnote in my sermon, and it's, of course, the Reverend Dr. Gretchen Woods. <laughs> for, uh, for folks visiting, um, Gretchen Woods was the interim minister who was my direct predecessor here. So this is, this was actually when she was the Reverend Gretchen Woods. I think this was part of her doctoral work. So Clark's language of brotherhood, of fatherhood, of mankind is no longer a particularly good description of who we are and where our culture is at as Unitarian Universalism. So, the title of the sermon is The Next Unitarian Universalism. What is next? Institutions can serve, and there's a tendency in our association to rest in the surety that we do things pretty well but religion, as Hodgkiss writes, is no friend of the status quo. No one touches holy ground and remains the same. So what is the transformation that awaits? What is the big dream that is starting to sh take shape? What are the possibilities of this moment? I think questions of race and class are the holy ground that will transform us in this generation. I joined Unitarian Universalism in the shadow of the founders of the Unitarian Church of Baltimore. Quite literally, most of their names are on the wall. It's a congregation where history is present in the wood of the pews. And the congregation that exists now is rightly proud of the role its founding generation played in early Unitarianism. But I don't think I ever really struggled, really struggled while I was there with the reality that most of that founding generation were slaveholders. That means two things, both they owned people and they were the 1% of Baltimore of their day. That's who that congregation was formed for. And Baltimore is hardly unique in this. Devoted Unitarians, excluded folks from membership who couldn't pay, died in the wool Universalists contributed to Jim Crow laws. And the hardest conversations that I've had in my job here and at every church I've been a part of are from people who aren't middle to upper class white folks who feel excluded from Unitarian Universalism on that basis. I want to make really clear that that happens. Those are conversations that I have. 
and they are heartbreaking every time. Race and class are where the hopes of our aspirations collide with the reality of the culture that we so often practice. And it is possible to do better. The good news is that the last few years in the life of the Unitarian Universalist Association have highlighted both where we've fallen short and the possibilities of doing better. Whatever, in 50 years, whatever the book on the history of Unitarian Universalism calls this half decade, the Southern lead hiring controversy, the reckoning, the crisis of white supremacy in Unitarian Universalism, it will be an inflection point in our association's history. What happens, what Unitarian look, Universalism looks like 10 years from now is going to be different than it was 10 years ago. The question is going to be how and how we're involved in that. So ultimately, I know another Unitarian Universalism is coming. I know there's a dream that a lot of people are having. And other people are starting to put on rabbit ears. And this has happened before. This happened in the fellowship movement. This happened in the women in the women in religion resolution, the Unitarian Universalism that exists before these moments is different than the one that exists afterwards. And if Hodgkiss is right about the tension between transformation and conservation, and everything I've ever seen in churches suggests that he is, then this isn't straightforward or easy work. I've been doing some work with congregations in transition this year um, congregations that are moving to call a new minister and other congregations and other ministers in the area. And there's a commonality in almost every Unitarian Universalist congregation, certainly in this part of the world, and I would guess everywhere. There's a tension between wanting to be transformed and transforma transformational, adapting to the possibilities that are out there, and not wanting anything to change. Because this is the place that we were transformed. This is the place that means a lot to us. So we don't want it to be different because it is deep and meaningful to us. And if we change anything, we might lose that. There's a, a constant give and take in most congregations between church members or ministers not me, <laughs> who think change isn't happening fast enough and those who are worried we'll lose something important if we move too fast. In this, in the end, I am called to serve the cause of liberal religion. Faith in progress is a little harder in 2019 than it was for James Freeman Clark in 1886, but that is the burning coal that still exists at the heart of that reading for me. The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. One of Clark's contemporaries wrote that. Progress might be slow. It might look like two steps forward, five or six back some days. 
but we're Unitarians. And for me, that means that we aren't in the business of pessimism. Possibilities beckon. They call us to change, to build on what the last, cha- what the last generation got done well and then do better. That is a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm not quite as optimistic as a lot of our 19th century predecessors. I'm not sure that any of us are perfectible, much less mankind as a particular demographic. But we do better each year, each generation, each century. And we are saved by one another. We are in community in this work, trying to do right by each other and those not yet with us. And then maybe, someday, as Maya Angelou writes, we will come to it. And we'll give Maya Angelou the last word.